friends, Chris Sauter, lead pastor at Neighborhood Church. We work hard at creating content every week that is life-giving and inspiring for people to live a full life. So we're inviting people who find this stream to be life-giving and encouraging to consider becoming a sustaining member at Neighborhood Church. That could be a one-time gift or to subscribe monthly. And you can do that at neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Thank you, friends, and enjoy the message. Neighborhood friends, welcome to our Good Friday service. If you want to find out more information about our community, you can go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. We start with our land recognition. We acknowledge that the hub is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands of indigenous people. The hub resides on land that was cared for and called home by the Ojibwa people before them, the Dakota and Northern Cheyenne people and other native peoples from time immemorial. Seated by the Ojibwe in an 1854 treaty, this land holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards, the native nations, and peoples of this region. As Neighborhood Church, we are a reconciling community, affirming tribal sovereignty, and working to hold ourselves accountable to American Indian peoples and nations. Welcome, friends. Sarah is going to be reading a poem. This poem is titled, Bianocht by John O'Donohue. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the curric of thought and the stain of ocean blackens beneath you, may there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. I'm reading out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, starting in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran to get a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the, tombs, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and explained, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. When reading the story of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they have similar details and varying details, but the one from Matthew that I love has this movement, has this energy of how the, the women who cared and loved for Jesus had to be off at a distance, that the people that Jesus called friends were nowhere even in, not even in the story, how there was um, soldiers there, there was people who believed that this um, prophet Elijah is going to come back and restore and make all things new, and there's going to be this power. And then there's this mysticism, there's this um, symbolism of the curtain of the temple where it separated the, the holy, where they believed heaven would live, where the divine would live. It splits open and becomes wild all into the nature. And then there's this, this very odd thing that is not mentioned in any other gospel of how these ancient holy people become alive. There is new life and they stay in their tombs until Jesus is resurrected. So it goes from death to this new energy and it doesn't go anywhere. There's this rumblings, there's this light, there is this, this new way of life. People put old dreams, people put old stories to say no longer is that anymore, no longer does that belong. And in this death, in this mysticism, all of a sudden there's new life that just sits and it waits. And so when you have these readings, you might have these questions. The question that, um, where so many people start is, well, then why did Jesus have to die? Which is an amazing question, which people have been asking for thousands of years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of, of, of people, uh, it's, it's called atonement theory. Of well, then Why did Jesus have to die? And it goes from penal substitution, that there's a God who is can't stand to look at me because of my sin. And my sin came not just from something I did, but something someone else did in this other mystical story at some time, at some place, made a decision that impacted them and everyone in the history of time. And there had to be payment. There had to be, there had to be payment to a scapegoat theory, to this Christ the victor, that Christ came and, and victory over death, over, over life, over suffering, over pain. There's all these different ways of thinking about it. No matter how you answer it, it's never going to lead to the place where it's going to be enough. There's always going to be something off. There's always going to be a little something more. So as good as questions they are, it might not always be the best question to start with. In fact, the best question to start with is how? Did Jesus die? Who killed Jesus? We were taught, my Nikki, my partner and I were talking earlier of how we, we either it was directly given to us or we just picked it up regardless as we were taught that I killed Jesus. I am responsible for the death of Jesus. And as a, as a kid, as a young teenager, you can feel how that can just sit on you, right? Did I kill Jesus? No. So who killed Jesus, right? The empire killed Jesus. 
Jesus was, um, Jesus was taken by a mob, actually uh, singled out by a friend, and by a mob brought before a sham trial where the people in power made up these accusations and convinced everyone that this is actually the holiest thing. This is the, the most sacred thing we could do is to execute this guy and then is beaten and then is made to carry his own cross and hung on a cross to die. He was murdered and he was executed. And why does that matter? Because this is what empire does. And Christians take this cross and for a long time they embraced it and they held it as, a, as the symbol of hope. But there's two different ways of looking at the cross. The, the other way you can start with is the cross was a symbol of death. It was a way for the empire to flex on the people who were beneath them. It was a way for them to remind them, like, yeah, you can play these cute little games, but you're going to stay in your lane. And if you don't, there's a cross with your name on it. It was a, an execution machine. It was a reminder of your place in this world and your way of being human. There was an order. And if you didn't fit into that order, there was a cross for you. It was a power play. It was a place of, 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 of shame, right? Nero lines up this whole entire road with, uh, with all these Christians saying, yeah, let's say it one more time, Jesus, Lord, and see what happens to you. It was a way for people to suppress themselves. It was a place of people having to not show up in the fullness of who they are. They had to play a role. They had to stay quiet. They had to sit down and shut up. Why? Because the cross is defining who you are. It would be no different than if we, on the front of our church, put an AR-15. And we said, look at this. It'd be no different for us in the middle of, our, of the hub. We put a, a big knee on the throat of, of some black man and said, this is our symbol of hope. That there is a way, if you don't enact my way, then the knee's coming on you and you, you, I can't breathe. And then he says, I don't care. Because that's what power does. That's what empire does. It crushes, it kills, it controls, it distorts. There's another way of looking at the cross. And this is the cross that Jesus hung on. This is the cross that the early church held on, is saying, you might try come and define me. You might throw hell at me. You might throw death. You might throw <laughs> trauma. You might throw suffering, but it will never, ever define who I am. Because love always wins. And Jesus embodies this from beginning to end of his life, where he walks around from party to party, from person to person, from meal to meal, where he's saying, those who have been counted out, those who said, oh, your body's not perfect like mine, it doesn't fit into this system, you don't, you're not into this group where we hold the power, we have the keys. If you don't fit into this way of being, this way of believing, this way of thinking, this policy, not only are you excluded, but you are less than. You are expendable. And Jesus walks in and says, Everything belongs. This kid, this person, this body, this way of loving, this way of seeing, this way, this way of identifying, it all belongs. And what happened? Those in power said, no, no, we can decide who belongs. So Jesus willingly goes to this cross because that's what love does. And the church took it as this sign of shame, the sign of, of um, empire in control. They took it as themselves saying, even this, does not get to define us. It's a way of holding a mirror to the world. It's a way of holding a mirror to the power and saying it will never be enough. How you deem justice, how you deem force, what you deem to be sacred, what you deem as this is the only way to go, they hold them and say, it will never win. It will never define me. Put your boot on my throat. I will not stop singing the song of love. So what does that mean for us? So then the cross 
shows this, this God who is weak, this God who is small, this God who is absolutely frail, a God who willingly lets other people's hands and saliva all over his body. There's a God who's thirsty and cries out. There is a God who's misunderstood, a God who's a disappointment. Look, let's wait, Elijah's going to come. Just a series of disappointments. There's a God who hangs. There's a God who watches soldiers as they throw dice for his clothes. There is a God who cries out saying, why have you abandoned me? A God who sees the women that he loves, the women who are going to take care of him, they can't even come close. So a God who is isolated and abandoned, not just by his father, but by his, even by his friends. There's a God who is hungry. There's a God who is naked. And there's a God in the midst of all that still says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What that means for me, what that means for us, is something so much bigger that did, did Jesus just come to shed blood? Did Jesus just come to get on the cross of this resurrection? No, no, what, what Jesus reveals to us, what the cross reveals to us, that no matter where we go in the trauma, in the pain, in the suffering, it never has to define us. To the, the deepest place we can go, to the shame, to the highest places of celebration, there is a God who being weak, who being frail, who being thirsty, who being a victim, as horrible and evil and atrocious that it is, it still doesn't get to define. It will never, ever win. Jesus shows that death is just a way of life. It is a part of our existence, a part of what we step into. It is a part of our reality. Death is something that, that those in empire, those in power, try manipulating. They try <laughs> using it for themselves or their own power. They try distracting from it, saying you only find life in these things. Jesus says there's death all around us in our trees, in our grass, in our bodies, in our hair, in our skin, in our cells, in, our <laughs> in the 80s fads, thank God that died, right? In all these things, there is this death because only in death can there be room for new life. And Jesus is saying, because of your pain, because of your suffering, because of your <laughs> not knowing, because of your uncertainty, because of your loneliness, because of your body, because of how you identify in your body or with your body, where other people say you're less than, you're stupid, shut up, sit down, this is what it means to be a good boy, this is what it means to be a good woman, right? Stay in your lane, keep down, keep quiet. Jesus saying, no, 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 it all belongs. And you will try defining it, and you will try owning it, and you will try suppressing it, but I get to show up in the fullness of myself because love always wins. So to my friends who are hurting, to my friends who feel they can't show up as themselves, to my friends who feel there is a God who can't match their pain, who can't see or identify their pain, who are simply just tired of showing up. Honestly, I bet that's a lot of us. We are just simply tired of showing up in love when those we love the most, those who are around us, those we at one point we have deemed safe, at one point we have deemed even family can see us and walk away and not even notice us. And we feel, why do I have to show up? Because this is what love demands. We get to move in love. And it's in that place where we're in that death, surrendering to that deep love, surrendering to the way of Christ, of where that, that veil rips in two and the spirit of the living God becomes wild and moves into all spaces in all places and it's there in those tombs of the ancient people, there is this new life that just begins to, begins to come up and it simply waits. There is new life, friends. 
and it is found tragically, sadly, and in some sense beautifully in dying. Dying to what I believe what I should be, dying to what I believe the dreams of what my family's place in me, dying to my ego, dying to what the empire says, you are only good, you are only worth, you are only valuable if and when, dying to it and saying I am fearfully and wonderfully made and I am loved and I'm worth it. So what we do on Good Friday and what we do as uh, Christians over and over and over again as we partake in the sacraments, we take in communion, and it's on um, this night that Jesus um, has his friends, has his disciples, and he walks them through and, and says, you know, you're going to eat of this bread, you're going to drink of this wine in remembrance of me. And I love that we get to do this because it's a way of us in solidarity with other um, Christians, of, other, uh, of people who are following Christ in so many different expressions from all different cultures and all different prayers, all different voices from generations, generations, and generations. We get to stand with them saying common language, that there is this holy worldwide church that we get to belong to. I love that. But there's another element. When Jesus says this, he could have said, in remembrance of me, just, just like literally, just think of me, right? Jesus could have said, just say this prayer. Jesus points to something that someone else's hands made. I can imagine someone's grandma made that made. Someone's grandpa or great uncle pressed that wine. And there is a story behind that bread. There's a story behind that wine. And in that bread, there is this texture. There's calories. There is <laughs> there's carbs, wonderful carbs. There's gluten, right? And in that wine, there is sugar. There is, there's a fragrance. There's a bitterness. There's a sweetness. And in those things, when you take it in your body, when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it's like, take in this way of love. And not just taking it, let it like break down and bring life to your muscles. Let it bring joy of the story of your grandma's hands. Let it remind you of those who have gone before you. Let it actually bring like life and hope and movement so your body can be what it was made to be. And how does that come? Through death. Through death. And we can take that in remembrance and we can move into this world and show up as a way of love, as a testament to this good and beautiful God, even in the most hellish and horrible circumstances. So we're going to take communion. I totally spaced to give you the warning beforehand. So if you want to scramble around and run and grab that Cinnabon, whatever it might be, you can grab it. I have, of the most holy of holies, a Frito-Lay chip. <laughs> because I couldn't find anything that was gluten-free. And so you can join with me as we take this. So, Jesus, we love you. The divine, we thank you. And to the Spirit, we welcome you. And I am incredibly thankful that there is new life to be had, but where it starts is in that death, that is in that surrendering, it is in that receiving. And I say thank you. I thank you that my trauma, I thank you that my fears, I thank you that my whatever I place as my dreams or my aspirations, as beautiful or as haunting as they might be, I still belong. And what defines me is not my successes, what defines me is not 
<laughs> the darkest parts of my life, what defines me is that I am loved. And that love, that divine, that spirit is in me. And I say yes to that. So I take this beautiful chip as it brings life and the salt and the texture. I pray that it will bring life to my body. And we take this juice, we take this liquid in remembrance of your body and remembrance of the blood that was spilled out. It was visible for people to see. And I pray that I too, that we too, that we are willing to give the best in all of ourselves to not just see our own lives flourish, but we can see the people around us and help them be the fullest, the fullest versions of themselves as well. May this blood, may this juice bring energy, vibrancy, courage, and wisdom. divine, in the name of the Christ, in the name of the Spirit. Amen. We are going to end with a benediction, a poem. Sarah's going to come on and read this. planted this garden, full of promise, full of hope. I watered it with tears, believing something would sprout. I pictured it for years, the day something would finally blossom. I hoped for the beauty that I would receive, but nothing came. So I started digging, and I kept digging, and I kept digging, and now, with dirt beneath my nails. I wonder if I'll ever see the beauty that was promised to me by those who sold me the seeds. I weep into the soil, this foundation I've created. I press the soil between my fingers and I ache for the promises I still have yet to see. The tension in my body tells me of injustice, of good intentions, of betrayal, of something more than me. Centered by the smell of dirt. If only you were here, I whisper. If only I could find within the foundation before me the one of whom I dream. But what I keep on hearing in this memory of the intangible is that you are the God of waiting. You are the one who brings beauty to that which is not yet. You are the one who draws us into life when the story we've told ourselves is uprooted and our hopes alongside them. You see before and in between and beyond the timelines that we've bound ourselves within as we lie in wait for excavation from these garden graves. The God of waiting our hope when there is nothing else, whispering 
my love. It gets better. All right, friends. Well, thank you for spending Good Friday with us. I pray that you find some reflection and some hope and a deep sense of belonging. If you'd like to join us on Easter, we have our service at 10 a.m. And if you'd like to find out more information about who we are, you can go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Blessings, friends.